Hey everyone, just a bit of a disclaimer before this episode of People Are Wild begins. I like to prefer to call this episode a lost episode because I totally forgot I had recorded it and I did it in the summertime. So I recently unearthed it. A lot of the information in it is definitely important, very pertinent, still holds up. Although some of the references are a bit dated now that we are in fall. So please bear with me on that. Also, this particular episode is based off of an article from Backpacker Magazine that I will definitely be putting a link to in the show notes. It goes into more detail in that article about these stories of survival and as well as some of the stories of just these people in particular. So again, thank you for listening. And here is a quote unquote lost episode of People Are Wild. Welcome back to a new episode of People Are Wild. My name is Kim and I'm your friendly neighborhood ER travel nurse of a host here for a brand new week to give you something I call medutainment, which is medical entertainment. Now I realized in my last episode, I sort of hinted at doing a bit of a series about shock. And trust me, that'll be coming soon enough. But this week, I decided to do a little bit of something, well, different. That was inspired by an article I had read not too long ago in Backpacker Magazine. In fact, we're just going to go right into this. So you can light whatever prayer candles you would like to enhance your mood while listening to this week's episode. Ever wonder to yourself, how do hikers meet their maker in the backcountry? Come on, it can't be just me. I can't be the only one who wonders about this sort of stuff, right? Right? Well, either way, the answers might surprise you, and we're going to go through them today on this week's episode, because we're going to lean a little bit more on my wilderness medicine background, and I'm going to share with you some of the ways that people have died in the wilderness. So, please be advised that this episode does deal with death, and does share some rather graphic recollections and stories, as well as addressing sensitive subject matter regarding mental health. So, listener discretion is advised. Now, rampaging grizzlies and killer blizzards and pouncing cougars, and no, I'm not talking about Demi Moore on that last one. No, no, in this weird version of a lions and tigers and scares situation, there's a creation of stuff that is the thing of nightmares and blockbusters, the terrors that send our pulses racing, whether we're sleeping in the woods or reading on the sofa. Perhaps that's because we view wilderness in two ways, I would say, both as this tranquil, blessed, holy place for some, where we can heal from civilization's assaults and escape from the hustle and bustle. And also, we view it as a hostile void where only the uber-tough prepared for death should venture into. Like Bear Grylls, drinking his own urine, right? That sort of person, that's who goes out into the wilderness. So which is it? I mean, should you take the helmet and ice axe with you? A bug out bag and GPS? The bear spray and bug repellent? Well, let's get down to some statistics. I live and breathe reading statistics and facts. It's like my happy place. So let's just get this one out of the way first and foremost. Wilderness fatalities are extraordinarily rare. But when they do happen, they typically aren't the result of climbing, skiing, or base jumping accidents. It's usually hikers who tend to die out there. Additionally, it's not the giant man-eaters that pose the biggest threat. It's really you and me, and our tendency to make foolhardy decisions. Looks like I can't blame bears for everything that goes wrong in the wilderness or my life after all. In this episode, I'm going to try and outline and cover some case studies and some topics and stories that illustrate the ways that hikers might ultimately meet their end in the woods or in the backcountry. Most of these victims made mistakes, 
And they're the same kind we all get away with on a regular basis, especially when we're out in the wilderness. And therein lies the point. I'm not going to be replaying and relaying these tragedies to wallow in these people's misfortunes. Because for each tale, there is an opportunity for us to learn. In each tale, we might see bits of ourselves and a few lessons that might help you to avoid a similar fate. So once again, it seems like I do this somewhat regularly, this podcast might be about to save your life. You're welcome in advance. So have you ever been tempted to climb higher when you're out hiking? Well, think twice, because while Alicia Keys might proclaim about falling in love with you, falls in the wilderness are the number one cause of backcountry injury and death. Dana Crane, an outdoorsy 19-year-old student at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, lay crumpled on the beach near Strawberry Point in Washington's Olympic National Park. Now, if you've ever trekked out to the left coast, the west coast best coast, as they say, Olympic National Park is gorgeous and majestic and can scratch every nature itch you might have. But for Dana... It was the setting for an unexpected end to a trip she had planned to celebrate her recently completed sophomore year. After four days in the Ho rainforest, Crane had made a spur-of-the-moment decision to trek down the coast. Not expecting any trouble, she didn't register at the third beach trailhead. On day two of her coastal hike, she stashed her pack and jogged to Strawberry Point, where sand bluffs taper out from the shore to form a low spit, capped by a 70-foot spire. Enchanted by the sea stack, she scrambled up for a view. That's when tragedy happened. Because suddenly, she greased off mossy holds and cartwheeled 25 feet down onto jagged, fist-sized cobbles. She was knocked out instantly. And when she came to, a quick inventory on herself, and some of it, which would be later provided to her, resulted in this rundown of injuries. Dana had sustained a black eye, gashes in her back, two shattered feet, a broken pelvis, broken thumb, separated ribs, displaced fracture of her lower right leg, and three spinal fractures. In her case, though, this is a story of survival. Because despite those injuries, she was able to crawl nearly 100 yards to the shelter of driftwood logs piled beneath the bluffs. So the length of a football field, pretty much, right? There she lay for 48 hours without food, water, or gear, getting chilled, baked, and severely dehydrated. When finally, a couple hikers came by where she was. Now, Brandon Smith would recall that we had heard a whistling sound. Brandon Smith was a 26-year-old hiker from Missoula, Montana, who was with his girlfriend, Heather McKee. She looked over and had seen a girl that was smashed up pretty bad, McKee would later recall. And she stayed with Dana while Brandon went and ran for help. He found off-duty ranger Dave Skinner, who happened to have a cell phone. Two hours after Skinner reached a spot where he could get a signal, Dana was finally evacuated by helicopter to a Seattle hospital, where she would undergo multiple surgeries and survive. Now, the ranger, Dave Skinner, would later go on to say that this is an actually pretty popular area, and he was surprised that no one could lay there that long. But he surmised that Dana might have been in and out of consciousness, so people might have just walked past her and not even known she was there. Brandon is a little bit more judgmental, though, and he said she shouldn't have been out on that rock face anyways. It was way, way too steep. Now, taking a step back, unroped falls are the number one cause of wilderness deaths nationwide. You see a lot of articles about how people slip and fall off the sides of cliffs, trailheads, everything in between. And that is how most people sustain death and life-threatening injuries on these trails in the wilderness. Now, research suggests that most accidents happen while hikers are scrambling up or descending semi-technical peaks, crossing Class 3 passes, or getting far out onto overlooks for better views and pictures. So the whole doing it for the gram or getting that epic selfie, it's really not worth it if you end up slipping and falling to your doom. Steep snowfields, rotten rock bands, and gravelly ledges are typical culprits, that and the combination of overconfidence. 
Many victims could avoid falling if they had spent more time looking for an alternative route. So here's some advice on how to avoid having tragic ends to your lovely hiking excursion. You have to leave word with people. Tell them where you're going. Dana Crane's first error was failing to register or give her return date to a friend. Now, this is vitally important for solo hikers, and I can assure you from my personal experience, I always leave some sort of note behind, either physical, digital, or both. Whatever I have to do, I leave a plan, I register at trailheads, and I tell the people who can call authorities promptly where I should be and when I should be coming back. So don't end up like Aaron Ralston, the guy in 127 hours, and have to cut off your own arm because you didn't leave a plan. And that whole story is going to be a different story for a different episode. I have rather strong feelings and maybe even a little bit of insider information on that whole thing. Now, going on, carry a lifeline. Dana's second mistake was leaving her pack and all of her safety gear behind. Always, always, always stash a basic survival kit in your pocket on small hikes. Now, If you take wilderness medicine courses, which I highly suggest if you're an avid outdoors person, especially if you're an avid outdoors person, I should say, you will get the tools to create your own kits that are lightweight and a no-brainer to carry with you regardless of how far your hike is. So don't skip this step of carrying a lifeline, even if it's a relatively easy or advertised as a short hike, because chances are that the little hike you do and decide to leave your kit behind on will be the one time you actually need it. And make sure that you climb and you hike smart. If you're alone Attempt only easy moves and test each hold to make sure that it's solid. Avoid wet, mossy, and loose rock and never ascend any face you wouldn't be absolutely comfortable down climbing. When contemplating sketchy moves or long exposed snow fields, ask yourself what the worst outcome could be. If it's ugly, find another way or turn around. And I've done this plenty of times and even turned around on trails where I've done solo hikes. I had a trail in the summer a few years back that was about 10,000 feet that still had some snow on top of it even in July. And I ended up losing the trail in the snow for a bit and having to descend and go back another day to do it. So maybe one of the overall arching themes that you need to keep in mind is that trails are going to be there tomorrow, the next day, and the next. You might not be if you attempt to do something risky. So mishaps on frozen lakes and whitewater rivers represent the second most common cause of death in the wilderness. So on June 26, 2005, four thru-hikers showed up at the McClure Meadow Ranger Station in California's Kings Canyon National Park with an urgent message. They told Ranger Bob Keenan they had seen a red backpack floating in partially frozen Evolution Lake, an idyllic rock-bound pond set at 10,850 feet on the John Muir Pacific Crest Trails. Unable to reach the pack himself, the ranger called in a chopper, and from the cockpit, the pilots could see a human body was floating beneath the pack. A journal identified the victim as Peter Spoker, who was a 64-year-old male, Joshua Tree resident, who registered a few weeks earlier for a week-long solo loop. Peter was an obviously fit hiker, and had been carrying high-quality gear, photo equipment, and snowshoes. He had reached Evolution Basin by crossing a tough 13,000-foot Class II gap. Now, Peter was fascinating as an individual by anyone's measure. He was a long-bearded Hindu vegan and a professional didgeridoo player. I had no idea you could be a professional didgeridoo player, but you can. And just as a further side note, when I was in high school, one of my teachers that I had was probably an amateur didgeridoo player, and he would regularly play during our tests in order to have him practice and, as he said, promote good brain energy. I think in the moment I hated it, but now I'm strangely soothed by any music that somehow involves a didgeridoo. A few years back, I was able to attend a bluegrass festival while in Melbourne, and uh, they used it there, which would make sense because it's more Australian-based anyways, and I swear to you, it was transcendent in the sound that it produced with a bluegrass band. Don't knock it till you listen to it, okay? Now, Peter regularly taught himself bunches of skills and subjects from music to adventure 
advanced computer graphics. He was a guy who liked to learn and study up and put it into practice. He was passionate about his hobbies. Now, in recent years, he had taken to landscape photography, backpacking for weeks at a time to build a library of images. And he was also a wilderness veteran with expert climbing and survival skills. After all, he had been hiking in the High Sierra, often solo, for more than 40 years. So how did such an accomplished hiker drop through the ice of a tranquil lake? There are several possible scenarios that begin to emerge. First, Peter may have been trying to get water since both of his bottles were empty when he was found. Second, his snowshoes may have caused him to slip as he traversed the steep side hill above Evolution Lake. And a third possibility emerged that he might have been detoured down onto the lake for easier traveling and ended up breaking through where currents had weakened the ice. Now, Robert Coaster, who is a researcher with a Virginia-based company that does international search and rescue, says that any place that there's a water mixed with hiking, boating, and fishing, drowning usually wins first place. So most victims of drowning are whitewater paddlers or rafters who get trapped under strainers or ledges, or backpackers who fall off while fording rivers, often in spring runoff. So unfortunately for Peter, he ended up breaking through that ice and succumbing ultimately more than likely to exposure and drowning. So what do you do to avoid this? How do you survive in these environments? Well, one of the tips would be to doubt yourself, which sounds weird sometimes in a wilderness context. So a reoccurring theme in wilderness fatalities is overconfidence or simple neglect of basic safety procedures by veteran hikers. They've done it a million times. Why would this time be any different? And in Peter's case, it's typical of Sierra fatalities. He fit the bill. He was an expert and he was alone. A majority of the front country incidents are usually from newbies, but backcountry deaths often occur with extremely experienced hikers. So the lesson that you need to remember is to not be lulled into a false sense of security by years of trouble-free hiking. Always expect thin ice. Be ready to swim. You've probably heard it a hundred times, but it bears repeating. When you're crossing turbulent rivers, unbuckle your hip belt and your sternum strap so your pack doesn't force you underwater if you fall. And... Recline in rapids. If you happen to fall into whitewater turbulent waters, point your feet downstream so you can push away from rocks and float on your back until you can swim to shore. Never try to stand up in a strong current. If your foot gets trapped between rocks, you can get pushed over and drown. And it can happen quickly and without warning. So watch your footing and save your life. Now, on a windy day in July 2001, a group of senior hikers who call themselves the Over the Hill Gang, I love a good pun, were climbing an 8,952-foot Mount Cannon in Glacier National Park. Now, it's a stout ascent with some scary Class 4 scrambling, but these men were veteran glacier backpackers with numerous technical peaks on their resumes. But suddenly, 69-year-old Harry Isk didn't feel well. He had joked about somebody having to take his pack, recalls one of his friends, George Ostrom, one of the group's founders. And while most of the party moved forward, two members stuck by Harry, including his friend, uh, High Gibson, who was a retired physician. And he would later recount that he turned around and he saw Harry sitting down and he said that he had felt dizzy. So Dr. Gibson decided to check his pulse and he felt an irregularity in Harry's pulse. His initial instinct was that Harry might be in a rhythm called atrial fibrillation, which is when you have a weak and vibrating pulse. It can also be quite rapid at times as well if you're feeling it on somebody's wrist. Now, Dr. Gibson and a fellow hiker, Pat Giarnan, decided to take Harry back down to the cars. They considered calling for a helicopter, but unfortunately for them, gale force winds and the steep location precluded it. Now, hang on just real quick. I'm getting like this weird association, but doesn't Eddie, like Tamara's husband from the Real Housewives of the OC, have AFib, atrial fibrillation? He's had like 16 surgeries or something to try and fix it with ablations. I don't even know why I know that. I don't even watch that series anymore. I haven't touched it for years. I just... I. 
oh, damn you, People Magazine, how did you get to my brain? Anyways, Dr. Gibson said that they had picked the easiest route down and then all started down together. He kept taking Harry's pulse, and at some point, it began to normalize. That reassured Dr. Gibson, but only for a moment. Now, they intercepted the hidden lake trail and began climbing again to where a boardwalk descends to Logan's Pass Visitor Center. Now, Dr. Gibson recalled that at this point, Harry was doing okay. Again, a reassurance, but it was very brief. Because at that point at the visitor center, he ran into one of his friends, he got to talking, and when he turned around, he noticed Harry was down on the trail. Immediately, a man and his son arrived. And that man was an ER doc from Minnesota, and his son had just completed CPR training. So they took turns trying to resuscitate Harry. Within minutes, an ER nurse from Chicago happened to be going by. And then an ICU nurse from Stanford happened to come into the scene. Dr. Gibson said you couldn't get that kind of expertise on a sidewalk outside of a hospital. Even with the deck stacked, it was of no use. Harry Isk ended up passing away from a heart attack. Now, just as a backup real quick, it always seems to happen, and maybe it's because I just hang around medical people, but I feel like I've seen this in a lot of situations where when something bad happens in the wilderness, suddenly people who are medically minded just randomly show up on your path, or they're the people that end up being part of the people that rescue you or part of the team that finds you initially before search and rescue. For instance, a friend of mine is a paramedic who was mountain biking with one of their friends who's an ER nurse and another friend who was a PA in the ER. And the rider ahead of them actually fell off the bike and suffered a head injury and there was a question of spinal cord injury. So only in this wilderness setting, this backcountry setting, do you get a paramedic, an ER nurse, and a PA who works in the ER as well immediately zooming in to care for you when you have this concern about a spinal injury. So it's weird how it works like that. I suppose maybe healthcare providers are like Visa, they're everywhere you want to be. But real talk though, going back to Harry and his unfortunate heart attack, heart failure is a top five killer everywhere, but it jumps to second place in areas where steep, high elevation trails are located near lowland cities. Harry was both representative and atypical of these victims. He was the least fit member of his group, which makes him a typical target, but he was much older than the average backcountry heart attack victim, a male in his 50s pursuing the same fitness goals he had attained in his 30s. Harry was just shy of 70 at 69, and he had a lot of hikes under his belt. It should also be added that sometimes heat stress or hypothermia can be contributing factors into stressing out the heart. So what can you do to help avoid this? Well, heart attacks are kind of tricky, but there are some lifestyle things that you can do in addition to just being aware of your body. Get your heart checked. It's the simplest thing. In the backcountry, heart attacks disproportionately affect baby boomer generation males. So if you're a guy pushing 50, get to a doctor for a full cardiac workup. And that goes double if you haven't done much hiking lately and are supposed to be going on a long hike soon. So boost your training. There's no need to back off big goals. But the days are gone when you could race up Mount Rainier without substantial preparation. So to improve your odds, start working out three months before any big backpacking trip and include a six plus hour hike with a pack at least once a week. Check your pace. Now, Harry wasn't going fast, but he may have been going too fast for the altitude given his conditioning. So make sure to find a speed that lets you maintain conversation where you're not too out of breath. Now, let's touch on a familiar topic to some, but it bears repeating. Exposure attacks both the body and mind and can quickly compromise your dexterity and decision-making ability. Your chance of survival goes down drastically if you're exposed to the elements without proper preparation and layering with every passing hour. You can die from exposure quicker than you will die from lack of food or lack of water in the wilderness. Too cold, too hot, you're done either way without having effective preparation and or prompt interventions. So on Saturday morning, November 30th, 2002, Arthur Birchmeyer, a 58-year-old 
outdoors enthusiast from Syracuse, New York, ventured into the swampy Moose River Plains in the western Adirondacks. He was familiar with the area, but still carried a map, three compasses, and a GPS unit. In addition to a lighter, matches, a flashlight, and hunting equipment. Around midday, a cold front swept through, dumping two feet of snow and dropping temperatures into the teens. When Arthur's wife reported him missing on Monday, an intensive search began. Ranger Will Gerard would later recall that by the time that they got in there, they were dealing with sub-zero temperatures. And two days later, a helicopter pilot located Arthur's body less than a mile from the snowmobile trail he had hiked in on. Now, the initial assumption was that he had screwed up, that he didn't know how to use his GPS unit. But as the searchers went to recover the body and as everything began to come through with the investigation, they found that Arthur's Garmin was still on and recording data. And when they combined that with evidence from his tracks, a more tragic picture began to emerge. Before he died, Arthur Birchmeyer had made several attempts to intersect the gated road that led to his truck. Unfortunately, though, he hit it in a whiteout part of the blizzard after heavy snow had bent the trees, obscuring the narrow track. Any and all landmarks he had were gone. A few hours later, he crossed back near the same place again, less than 300 yards from the road. He then climbed over a high ridge to the banks of the Indian River, where he built a fire under an overhanging spruce. The next morning, he beelined northeast, heading for a waypoint labeled End of the Road. At 8.30 a.m., a man overboard waypoint appears on his GPS. He had fallen in a beaver swamp up to his waist. To start a fire, he ended up prying a bullet apart from his hunting equipment, but the gunpowder flashed too fast, and his fingers at this point probably lacked the dexterity to work properly. And maybe what was most tragic of all was that he was less than half a mile from the gate. His vehicle, another mile and a half up the road, had a stove, a sleeping bag, insulated one-piece suit, food, and water. But Arthur thought he had been wrong before, so he turned and headed back to his previous night's camp on the Indian River. Failing to relight his fire, he succumbed to the elements and died soon thereafter. So hypothermia always ranks among the top three killers in cold weather and mountain environments, and it's a contributing factor in many other fatalities in spots like Mount Rainier and even New Hampshire's presidential range. Cold is villain number one. Mr. Freeze, I see you. Going to kick some ice, if you will. But you don't need winter to really die of exposure. From the Smokies to the Sierras, hikers have been felled by the pernicious combination of wind, humidity, and 45 degree Fahrenheit temps. So what do you do to survive this? Rehydrate and rest. Dehydration and fatigue accelerate hypothermia. So don't plod along in a single-minded effort to escape the cold. Stop regularly to eat and drink and find a place that will keep you warm without exhausting your muscles. Pack some heat. No, not like the firearm kind of heat like Arthur had. Many hypothermia victims are day hikers who leave their sleeping bags behind, expecting to return before dark. And that might be a fine strategy in the summer, but always pack a bag in the winter on your person. Chemical hand warmers and a thermos of hot soup are also wise. And a reliable supply of fire starting materials, which is not just a lighter, is essential. And finally, learn winter tricks. Things like stuffing leaves in your shirt to make good insulation, or a south-facing slope is warmer and less snowy. These things can help you if you're caught out there, and it's you against the elements. Now, maybe in a further effort to echo some previous episodes, I did something not too long ago regarding hypothermia. So if you're really into some more tips and tricks, you can definitely listen to that episode. Let's go into another topic that I had talked about during the beginning of the summer, a formidable threat that is especially prevalent in the Southwest, heat stress and heat illness is something that can cause a devastating demise for any hikers or people in the wilderness. It can strike with extreme force, though not without ample warning. On Thursday, July 8th, 2004, at about 9 a.m., 24-year-old Margaret Bradley and a male companion left the Grand Canyon South Rim for a 27-mile trail run. Let's go over that one more time. 9 a.m., July 8th, Grand Canyon, Arizona, trail run, 
27 miles. Now, their plan was to descend the Grandview Trail to the Tonto Trail, cross 16 miles of hot, rolling plateau, so exposed areas, then climb 3,200 feet in 5.5 miles back to the rim of the South Kaibab Trail in July in Arizona. Now, that spring, Bradley had finished the Boston Marathon in 88-degree heat, placing 31st among women with a time of 3 hours and 4 minutes. She figured that this would be a similar sort of effort, and so the duo was traveling light. Bradley's partner, who authorities refused to name, he carried a gallon of water. She carried 1.5 liters. Now, there are no water sources along this route, and neither of them carried maps or headlamps. And by 3 p.m., the temperature had reached 105 degrees Fahrenheit, and the pair had only covered 12 miles of this 27-mile trail run. On the exposed plateau, quickly turned into a walk. Soon, the man crawled under a bush, unable to continue, and Bradley went on for help. Now, around dawn, the man woke to cooler temperatures and pushed on, As he neared the South Kaibab Trail, he encountered a USGS employee with a satellite phone who called the rangers for directions to an emergency water cache. Inexplicably, the companion never mentioned Margaret Bradley. Going back, Grand Canyon Search and Rescue Coordinator Ken Phillips said that maybe with all the confusion, he assumed that she had gotten out of the canyon. And so Margaret wasn't reported missing until Saturday morning. Remember, they had gone out on this trail run on Thursday. At 2 p.m., a helicopter spotted her body 300 feet below the Tonto Trail in the creek drainage. She was curled in a fetal position, and she was a casualty of acute dehydration and heat stroke. Now, like all too many Grand Canyon fatalities, Margaret Bradley was apparently trying to reach the river, only to be stymied by unbroken cliff bands. She had been descending several small pour-offs, it was surmised by search and rescue teams. And the last one, which was a water-polished slick rock trough, was high enough and tough enough that she couldn't get back up. Now, the authorities estimated she had died 12 to 24 hours before being found, and as many as 30 hours after her companion had reached a satellite phone. Search and rescue teams do about 300 rescue missions a year in that region, and about 80% of them are related to heat. Now, most victims are either new to the desert, too ambitious, or forced by circumstance to move to midday. This results in one of four conditions. One would be heat exhaustion, where dehydration leads to acute fatigue and potential organ failure. Two, the step above heat exhaustion, heat stroke, which is the life-threatening rise in core body temperature. Three, hyponatremia, which is a dangerous combination of heavy sweating, high water consumption, and low salt intake that leaches electrolytes from the body, which can lead to seizures. And the fourth condition, that heat stress can cause, exertional rhabdomyolysis, which is the breakdown of muscle fibers from exertion and heat, which releases myoglobin that clogs the kidneys and leads to kidney failure. Didn't catch any of that? Don't you worry. We're going to talk about that in a future episode. And when I do, oh, I know I'm going to tick off a lot of you CrossFit peeps out there. Please forgive me in advance. Anyways, so how do you survive heat stress? Well, If you're a person that's active and not really thinking that they're going to be caught out in the heat, you can train for that heat. So in several weeks, you can actually adapt your body to extreme hot weather. Take it from me, I was born and raised in that Arizona heat, and it's possible to adapt to that heat, but you have to do it gradually, safely, and with proper hydration. So stash water. If you're not sure if you'll encounter a stream or a spring on your hike, then try and do perhaps a little bit of recon and scouting a day ahead. Take the drive and or hike extra water into one or more locations along your intended route. So eight liters a day is wise for a hot climate. And I will tell you, it is unbelievable the amount of rescues that are performed in Arizona during the summer with people who 
don't take in adequate hydration. You will see people hiking with a small, I mean like those small teeny tiny bottles of Arrowhead and taking that up with them on a hot July day in Arizona where temps can easily top 105 degrees by 10 a.m. So you better believe that you either need to stock up on your water, stash some water, or have friends who have a lot of water too, but you can't rely on them all the time as well. So honestly, overdo it with your hydration on hot days in terms of how much water you pack. Take breaks in order to take sips. Don't feel like you have to go all out on a trail in the hot, hot, extreme heat. And actually expect to be slower and to take breaks often, especially when you're hiking in a group. This gives everyone time to hydrate and to check in with each other. So say you want to go high in July, and I'm not talking about like high in the atmosphere, high where the air is clear, like summiting on a peak when you're hiking. Well, the rule of thumb still applies even though we're in the tail end of summer. Starting in the early afternoon, that's when high voltage hour in many mountain ranges is beginning. Now, in some parts of the country, Boy Scouts have gained a reputation for walking into disaster, but Troop 7001 from St. Helena in California's Napa Valley was different. These boys had gone on 110-mile canoe trips and winter campouts. They had climbed the Grand Tetons and Olympus. They studied first aid and navigation. And now, in late July 2005, they were tackling a 70-mile nine-day trek in the Sequoia King's Canyon National Parks. Now, around 2 p.m. on day 7, the 12-person party pitched camp in a clearing at the eastern foot of Mount Whitney. The plan was to turn in early, get a midnight start, and summit at sunrise. As the boys lounged, a storm cell moved in from the north. Now, this was little cause for alarm. The forest rose a thousand feet above them to ridgeline. They were beneath tarps, sleeping on sleeping pads, and on top dry ground sheets when the rain began. They had been counting the time between flashes and thunder, and using it as an opportunity to teach the Boy Scouts about sound speed. But they would never finish that conversation. Because a bolt hit a nearby tree and arced horizontally under the tarps and all but four members of the troop were immediately knocked out. Their scout leader, Stu Smith, would later recall that he came to in this brown sea of hurt. It was like when your foot goes to sleep, then comes awake only all over and to the 10th power. Now three people were in cardiac arrest. Their heart had stopped, and the fourth lay moaning, with blood streaming from his mouth and nose. And as scout leader Smith directed CPR efforts, two of the boys raced to a nearby cabin. Luckily, it was a ranger station cabin, and two adults came around quickly, and ranger Rob Pulaski arrived within the hour, followed by a helicopter. Despite their best efforts, though, 29-year-old Stephen McCulloch, a burly winemaker and father of two, never regained consciousness. And Ryan Collins, a 13-year-old who would have entered 8th grade that fall, well, he was resuscitated, but loss of brain function led to the removal of life support weeks later. Now, lightning injures approximately 500 to 700 people a year in the United States alone, and kills roughly about 75 people. Now, few are actually backcountry and wilderness accidents, perhaps because electrical events are so impressively frightening. Most wilderness incidents happen to boaters or hikers and climbers caught on high ridgelines during afternoon storms. One of the rangers at the Grand Teton National Park, Rennie Jackson, says that they usually get near-daily summer lightning storms, but when they had a major disaster on the Exum Ridge two years ago, they had checked their records and were surprised to find they had never had another fatality inside the park until then. So how do you survive lightning strikes? Well, if only there was a podcast that had an episode all about lightning strikes. Oh, wait, you're listening to it. So yes, there was one that I did before, but it's no worries. I still got you here. So climb early and camp low. Your single smartest move is to descend from above treeline peaks and ridges by 2 p.m. during the summer. And if there's a black cloud within five miles, you've probably waited too long. Split up. Should a lightning storm approach your party, spread out so a single strike doesn't disable the entire group. Avoid electricity magnets. Things that are bad 
in terms of things that electricity and lightning would love are single tall trees, metal objects, and high rock outcrops. Things that are good would be gullies, depressions in a meadow, and any spot lower than your current position. And maybe what's most important, learn CPR. Because nearly everybody who dies from lightning dies from cardiac arrest. So for the Boy Scout Troop 7001, their training and the fast response of search and rescue and the rangers, it enabled them to save at least two lives that day. So you might be thinking to yourself that I am taking us down a trip down memory lane, and we sort of have been, but we're not going to for the majority of this whole entire episode, I think. Just hang in there with me. Now, these are rare among hikers, but snow slides and avalanches are deadly and highly unpredictable. See, we haven't talked about avalanches in the past before. See, switching it up. I got you. So at 6 a.m. on March 20th, 2004, Dave Bennett, Joel Sebersma, and Kyle Fitzpatrick set off to hike a 14,336-foot La Plata Peak, the fifth highest summit in Colorado. So in this group, there were experienced peak baggers, which were people who take avalanche courses and are equipped with shovels, probes, emergency gear, and the knowledge to interpret what would be an avalanche situation. So after summiting a bit behind schedule, the group decided to speed their descent by glossading down. So if you've never done that, it's kind of like if you were to ski without skis. So they found this nice long patch that would take them all the way to La Plata Creek. So Joel had been watching Kyle descend and waited until he was about 400 yards below him before he decided to make his own descent. As he was going down about 10 yards in, that's when the snow fractured. Now Joel tried to stop, but the axe ripped out of his hands. And he recalled that for the first five or 10 seconds, his life flashed before his eyes. So Joel would say that it was just this morbid waiting game. He would state, quote, you don't know which time the slide slows will be the last or whether or not you'll be buried. When it finally stopped, though, I was on top. Now, for the other people in their group, Dave Bennett had seen the slide scour the mountainside from 13,200 feet down to 11,600. When a lone figure emerged, he thought it was Kyle because he had watched Joel getting pummeled and assumed that his friend was dead. When he realized that it was Joel, the pair sprung into action and searched for Kyle for two hours using avalanche probes. But at some point, it was starting to get dark, and Joel was in pretty bad shape. Luckily for them, Dave had wilderness first responder training, and he quickly thought that Joel might have sustained a cracked skull, a head injury. After all, he had this huge lump, and there was blood pouring from it, and Joel was kind of hallucinating. It was at that point that they had to make the gut-wrenching decision to stop the search and to climb their way out in a six-hour struggle to the trailhead. When they reached the trailhead, though, they realized that their friend Kyle was the one who had driven. So they ended up having to smash his car window to get extra food and clothing. Just at that point, though, luck struck and a sheriff had pulled up. They had left a plan, and Joel's girlfriend and Kyle's fiance had called authorities when the trio didn't make it to their meeting time. The next day, a rescue dog located Kyle's body buried in three feet of snow that had frozen so hard it broke searchers' probes. Now, avalanches are a rare threat for three-season peak baggers. There have only been about two fatalities in the past decade or so, but they pose a very serious risk for backcountry skiers and mountaineers. An average of 22 skiers, snowboarders, and snowmobilers die each year in backcountry avalanches in the United States. More than 90% are caught in slides they triggered by crossing an unstable slope. Surprisingly, though, most victims are skilled outdoors enthusiasts with avalanche training. So it used to be thought that education was key and knowledge was power. But people seem to think that because of their knowledge, they can start pushing closer and closer to the edge. And ultimately, they make a fatal decision. So how do you survive this? Time your climb. Morning is better than afternoon. And cold days are better than warm ones. Also, stay off steep slopes during or soon after windy storms, which create unstable snowpacks. 
spread out. The same practice that holds for lightning applies to unstable hillsides, but in the case of avalanche-prone slopes, it's wise to increase distance between individuals from 100 to 200 or more feet. And finally, try another day. Because many victims die from injuries sustained during the slide, even companions with beacons and rescue skills can't necessarily help. So the best advice? Avoid getting caught altogether. Turn back and revisit when the slope is safer. The mountain will always be there. You might not be tomorrow. So some less common causes of death in the wilderness. Suicide. So when wilderness search and rescue teams respond to a front country call, chances are the distress party is what search and rescue teams would list as despondent. And suicides are actually common in some national parks, but some victims tend to launch from drive-up cliffs and other accessible spots. There was this weird complex case I had years ago with a patient who did sort of that. The patient was wanted by law enforcement on a warrant and led the police on a chase that wound up weaving through a national park. And the cops did a backcountry sort of pit maneuver. So the patient did not try to launch himself off of a cliffside in an attempt to kill themselves. There was a whole entourage of other factors in place that accompanied this guy, but it was totally one of the more wild things that I have ever been involved with in terms of what brought my patient to the ER that day. So backcountry suicides are much less frequent. In fact, only a handful are reported yearly. So the best advice for that would be to know resources to get help calling suicide hotlines, listening to your friend who might be indicating that they're feeling a certain way, and stepping in to help. If all else fails and you're concerned about your own thoughts and actions or those of your friend or family member, call emergency services wherever you're at. Now, deaths due to flash floods can be somewhat rare and occur almost exclusively in canyoneering environments, so sort of in slot canyon sort of situations. But when they do kill, they tend to take out groups of people all at once, which can bump up the fatality average from year to year. Now, I've lived the majority of my life in the desert southwest, and during the summer, a thunderstorm can roll in quite quickly and wash out entire campsites in minutes due to flash flooding. So I remember a year or so ago, there was a flash flood that took out, I think, about a group of eight people, including, unfortunately, some children from the trail and their campground area. There was video of it moving so fast and so powerfully through this area, and it's devastating when that water rushes in all of a sudden, especially if you're caught somewhere within like a slot canyon situation where it's hard to get higher up without risking more of your own safety. But sometimes the thing you need to keep in mind with flash flooding incidents is that they're probably preceding that was an unwillingness to turn back despite obvious weather warnings. So you always want to check your forecasts and you always want to check in with the rangers and the people out on the trails and seeing what they're saying in terms of conditions and the weather as well. So if it's not advised to go certain places, Again, nature is going to still always be there. You don't want to make a decision that means that you're not going to. So how do you survive a flash flooding situation? Well, if you're going into something like a slot canyon, which is big in the Southwest, especially in Utah and Arizona, if the weather's bad, don't feel like you need to do this because you're on vacation. Like I said, things will always be there in terms of nature, and they might even change into something else different because of a flash flood. Sometimes it washes out certain things, and then it creates something even more beautiful and unique in that year that it takes to recover itself. So don't feel like you need to do something. Just come with a backup plan. Now, what about the creepy crawlies that can sometimes screw you over in the wilderness? Oh yes, we're going to start by talking about ticks and mosquitoes. So every year, hundreds of people fall victim to illnesses carried by these tiny pests. The list can include Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, encephalitis, and even West Nile. So, and I do sincerely apologize to the environment on this one, you need to apply DEET-based insect repellent. I know that there are more natural alternatives that are out there, but sometimes they don't do the trick against those creepy crawlies that might end up ultimately screwing you over. Make sure to do frequent tick checks on yourself, your family members, your friends, heck, even your animals, just to make sure that 
No one is walking around with something that, again, might screw them over later on in life. And consider wearing bug net clothing if necessary, depending on what your environment is. You might end up channeling your inner Paul from before the 90 days and get yourself a full body sort of bug net if need be. Whatever floats your boat, do you. Now, speaking of bees, get it? Need be? Bees? Uh, I went out on a limb on that one. I'm sorry. Bees, wasps, and fire ants can cause an allergic reaction from their stings and or bites. So 50 to 60 annual deaths almost always involve allergic reactions. Now, more recently in California, a woman remained hospitalized in critical condition after she had suffered over 200 bee stings in the OC area. So firefighters had arrived to this house where they found hundreds of bees attached to this woman. She was literally covered from head to toe and her face in bees, like the worst version you could think of the Candyman, right? Now, because of this, first responders had to think a little bit differently about how do we help this woman, but sort of kind of make sure we don't get swarmed. And sometimes you're all about helping that person and you put their safety over yours. So they jumped right in without putting on a lot of their gear and they did end up getting attacked by these bees. But can you blame them when they saw when they got on scene that these bees were in clusters the size of golf balls just all over her and having them on her face, around her mouth, around her ears, in her hair, on her neck, everything that could impede, you know, your breathing. You don't necessarily think about putting on your gear at least not at that point. So firefighters eventually were able to grab a carbon dioxide spray and they sprayed this woman to repel as many bees as they could while trying to carry her to safety. Now they described later on that she was conscious, but barely by the time they were able to do an effective rescue of her. But because the firefighters weren't fully protected, they ended up getting stung in the process and having to be transported to the hospital as well, where where they were stabilized and later released, and actually already back on duty at the time that I had read this article. This poor woman, though, she was just a woman, a cleaning woman in her mid-50s who had been working in a nearby house, and her prognosis, well, it's definitely in a critical range. Now, despite the firefighter's best efforts, she was still covered in bees when she arrived in the emergency room, but she's expected to survive. When somebody gets stung hundreds of times, you're thinking about the fact that they're being injected with venom numerous, numerous, numerous times, and it becomes a serious issue. And it doesn't matter if you're allergic or not, you cannot not have a reaction to that much venom in you. By the way, that would be so terrifying to have bees coming in on your patient when you're in the emergency room. A lot of times you get people who are covered in bodily fluids and other things, and that's just kind of goes with the territory of working emergency room medicine. But if somebody was covered in bees, that's definitely, I applaud that staff for doing what they have to do for that patient because I know internally, I would definitely be a little bit on edge, even if externally I'd be covered. I would just, I would still be a little bit on edge about the bees coming in with that patient. Now, I hope that this never happens to any of you. Obviously, I hope this never happens, that you are swarmed by bees, but should you get stung or bit by a fire ant or anything of the like, if you are sensitive to that and you have some sort of reaction or an allergy to it, you need to make sure that you consider carrying an oral antihistamine such as Benadryl or grabbing a prescription for an EpiPen. And I know there's a lot of things swirling around regarding EpiPens becoming hella expensive as of late, but talk with your doctor about that because trust me, everyone in healthcare is pretty much unanimous in being livid about the price increase, and we want to help you with affording to have life-saving meds for yourself or for your child. Like, trust me, we are on your side of being pissed off at those companies as well. And I'm not quite done with creepy crawlies just yet, because snakes and spiders also bear mention in talking about how people die in the wilderness. Now, several thousand people are bitten by snakes in the United States every year, but only about 12 to 14 of them die from it. 
So without anti-venom, there would probably be even more deaths. Also, with spiders, black widow and brown recluse spiders are the most dangerous species that we have in the United States. But oftentimes, years will pass without a fatal spider bite in the U.S. being noted. The best advice is that if you think you've been bit, get yourself immediately to the nearest emergency room like yesterday. And by the way, there is a show called Snake Salvation that I saw not too long ago. And those people, whenever they got bit by venom, as snakes, pray over the injury, and I guess pray the venom away instead of going to the hospital. So I'm just going to caution against using that course of treatment, but I do encourage you to watch that show because I need more people to see it so I can talk to them about it because I have a lot of feelings about it, if you can't tell. And finally, as a way of rounding out the devastating ways to expire, let's touch base on some animal attacks, right? It's the perfect way to end this episode. Gators have claimed five victims in the past year or so, but not in the wilderness for the most part. And approximately 30 gator attacks have resulted in death in the last half century. So most attacks occur in lakeside Florida suburbs and on golf courses, which probably isn't too shocking, I would think. Florida, bless your heart. Now the best advice is don't linger on the banks of gator country swamps, particularly at night, and don't stick your hand into the water trying to get out a golf ball if Adam Sandler is somehow involved in the equation. Just saying. Now, Demi Moore is a version of a cougar, but I feel like that joke is outdated since Ashton and Demi got divorced, so if anyone knows a more modern cougar situation, let me know. But anyways, for the purposes of the medutainment part, the animal version of a cougar is responsible for one to two people a year losing their lives to the animal attack, which shows a distinct preference for children and smaller adults. So cougars will try and attack toddlers, I guess is the best way of saying that. The best advice is to take your big dog or another person along when you're going on trails in known cougar country. But maybe don't operate under that principle that you bring a friend that you can outrun so that you can let them become cougar food first or bear food first. I feel like that's probably not a good hallmark of friendship. Now, speaking of bears, I saw my first black bear on a trail run not too long ago. And thankfully, it spooked itself or something. And I decided after it was away to sprint on a different route all the way back home where I promptly changed my shorts. But that story aside, statistics wise, from 2000 through the early summer 2006, there have been an average of two deaths a year in North America attributed to black bears. Now, this is according to a renowned grizzly researcher, Stephen Herrero, who also says in the same period, there were nine fatal attacks by grizzlies, so less than two per year on average. Now, fear not if you're a backpacker, because none of these incidents involved backpackers. But he does state that all of the black bear attacks were predatory, while the grizzly incidents were mostly defensive. So that stat reinforces a general rule of thumb, which is that you fight black bears and play dead with grizzlies. So always try and travel noisily. People sometimes have bells on their dogs or on themselves, especially if you're in bear country. Contain your food orders, get the bear cans, get those storage containers that they can't really get into and learn how to use those before you go out. And also store them securely, store food securely in bear country. I mean, Bear City can only be one turn away. It's probably right up the street from Rack City. Now, despite the media attention given to to every bear or cougar attack, predators are a tiny risk on the trail. You're much more likely to die from an allergic reaction to a wasp sting in your backyard or from a collision with a deer or a moose while driving to that trailhead than in the jaws of a belligerent grizzly, says Dr. Ricky Lee Langley, who is an animal attack expert with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. How do you get that job of being an animal attack expert? I can't even imagine the photos you would see. Anyways, he says that the vast majority of deaths occur in rural or suburban settings, which pretty much does line up with what you see in the news when it comes to animal attacks. So if nothing else, I want you to remember this takeaway from this episode. If you skipped all the way to the end for whatever reason, here's the takeaway. Here are the six deadly sins 
if you will. So these are the things that experts say are the bad backcountry behaviors that contribute to many wilderness fatalities. So throw away a lot of your preconceived notions about who the average victims are. This can happen to men and women of all shapes, sizes, ages, experience levels, and ambitions. All of this can happen in terms of the things that will make you susceptible to being at risk or tragically dying. So there's no common demographic profile, but there are certain things that a lot of these victims do share, and that is the six deadly sins, if you will. So summit hypnosis. A lot of times, and this is reported by a lot of park rangers in these national parks, there will be people who will attempt to go and do a summit three or four times, and they get so sucked into summit hypnosis that they end up bringing inadequate equipment or planning improperly and then being caught out there and ultimately might die due to exposure, which happened apparently at the Rocky Mountain National Park not too long ago. They had a guy who had attempted to summit three or four times, and he was so determined to summit that he did not pack adequately. There was an incoming snowstorm, and the next day they found him on the top, at the summit, dead from exposure. The number two sin would be big trip blinders. Now, a public information officer at Yosemite, Adrian Freeman, said that most of their fatalities involve through hikers or people who have planned these big vacations years in advance. And they get to a section with more snow than they expected, but they've been preparing for months, so they do it anyways. And that's how they end up in a bad situation. Like we said before, Always have a fallback plan. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, if you will. Number three sin, poor conditioning. So this is a huge contributor in a lot of accidents, and it complicates everything from the ability for a person to stay warm to their actual response in an emergency. So make sure you are training correctly for the things you want to do. Number four on the sins, inattentiveness. So victims fail to pay attention to the factors around them, to the warning signs going on above them when it comes to weather sometimes, to their partner's physical condition, to their terrain, to their hydration status. Too often, people become preoccupied with reaching their destination or looking at the scenery or just relaxing, and then before they know it, they are in a bad and possibly deadly situation. Now, deadly sin number five is bad communication. So people often don't know the true strengths and weaknesses of their partners and their climbing parties and their hiking buddies until they get out there, and they don't want to say anything to slow the group down. But at the end of the day, speak up, continue to check in with people, and force people to have breaks if you are the person leading this hike or this trip or whatever. Because if you set the tone that you're going to be taking a lot of breaks, people might not feel like they need to exert themselves beyond what they can do. And that might save you a lot of trouble. And the sixth deadly sin, soloing, which is one that I feel like I'm guilty of a lot. So this is the thing. A lot of people will say that they love solo hiking. I personally, I do. I love it. It's my time to be outside. However, a lot of times people who die out in the wilderness are people who've been successfully soloing for years and they get it in their head that nothing will go wrong. And that's when something goes wrong. And now there's no one out there to help them. So you have to leave your plans. Always write a note. But seriously, you do need to check in with people. And when I do what I do being a travel nurse, sometimes it's hard for me to check in with people like like I could if I were just in one state or one region or whatever and I can make a little bit more connections. So I've been able to find people from work that I can check in with pretty quickly to get their number, shoot them a message and say, hey, I'm going out on this trail. I should be back in an hour. I'll let you know when I get back. If I'm not back within an hour and a half, call this person. It's as easy as that. And you know what? People don't feel inconvenienced by that, I would say. I would think that if you're at least friendly enough with people, you tell them what your plans are, they'll at least be able to be like, cool, all right, I will make sure to write that down. And then if you don't come back at this time, I will call this person or I will do this next step. Most people I would think are not going to be inconvenienced by you leaving a note with them, especially if they know you, especially if they're friends with you, because these are people that are invested in you and you would want the same to be done vice versa. So 
make sure that you check in with people, you leave plans, and especially ever since I saw that bear when I was running, I definitely leave messages with more than one person. So don't feel like you have to always pick the same person. If you can pick another person or multiple people, it's only going to help with making sure that if something goes wrong, those people can sound the horn light the beacons, and get a search and rescue team activated sooner rather than later. And that will always increase chances of a good outcome. If you are genuinely interested in gaining more of a knowledge base in terms of wilderness and backcountry skills, take a wilderness course. Look it up through the National Outdoor Leadership School. That is a fantastic organization. They do a lot of wilderness medicine training. They do a lot of just GPS and navigation skills. It's a great place to start, and it's for anybody across the board. You can find a course that is tailored to you, I promise you. So gain those tools to have the confidence in outdoor situations, to read situations a little bit better around you, and trust me, you will have the outdoors on lock because you won't ever be overconfident. You will appreciate the fact that nature can squash you down in a second, but you will be able to read the signs to in order to ensure that you come back and you're able to see tomorrow. Hey guys. Hey y'all. I'm Shelby. I'm Jenny. And we are Wives Tales. Yeah, we're a weekly podcast all about dark mysteries, twisted legends, spooky folklore, and creepy creatures. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and you can find us anywhere podcasts are played pretty much. Yeah. Um, y'all keep it twisty. That's right. Bye. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Katie. And together we're Yeah, yeah No, no yeah. yeah. We cover scary stories, urban legends, why aliens are boring, and the true crimes that lay the groundwork for modern folklore. We'll also make sure you fear dating, Tinder, and other such websites. Tune in. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And on our website, yanopodcast.com.